0: It happens to me all the time and it happened just this week. A young person I'd never met introduced himself to me and said that when he saw our guest today on an earlier episode of this program, he felt he was seeing a man who knew how to think. Dr. Thomas Sowell on Uncommon Knowledge Now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Thomas Sowell has studied and taught economics, intellectual history, and social policy at institutions that include Cornell, Brandeis, UCLA, and Amherst. Now a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, Dr. Sowell has published more than a dozen books, including the classic A Conflict of Visions. Coming soon, a revised edition of his most recent volume, Discrimination and Disparities. Tom Sowell, welcome. Thank you. You grew up in Harlem, dropped out of high school to join the Marine Corps during the Korean War, received an undergraduate degree from Harvard, a master's from Columbia, and your doctorate from the University of Chicago. All of which pales by comparison with the fact that you once tried out for the Brooklyn Dodgers. (laughs) (laughs) But during this period from Harlem to the University of Chicago, Throughout your 20s, you've said, you spent most of the decade of your 20s as a Marxist. Yes. Why? What was, a, what, what was the attraction?
1: Well, I guess I first, was, was uh, very puzzled. See, you, you, there, there's one little correction I would make. Uh, uh, at age 16, I was a dropout, high school dropout, uh, and I went to work full-time as a Western Union messenger. Uh, and and uh, delivering telegrams. Delivering telegrams. We better say that because there will be a generation that won't know what Western Union was. But go yeah, ahead. that's true too. Right. right. Uh, and so I, 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 wor- I worked in the area, area of Manhattan called the Chelsea District, which is around Twenty Third Street, Ninth Avenue. And at the end of the day, I had uh, several ways of getting back home. I, the easiest, fastest way was with a subway, which was a nickel in those days. Wow. When I was feeling I might go for a bus, uh, for a dime. And then when I was really getting reckless, I I would take the Fifth Avenue bus, which was the elite of the buses, uh, was 15 cents. And so I would walk over to Fifth Avenue, take that bus, and it would take me up uh, through all the glamorous parts of Fifth Avenue, past the Empire State Building, uh, past the great uh, stores and things of that sort. Uh, and then on 57th Street, it would turn, and, and, and it was. This is just a, the elite part of town. Sure, right elite there part. where the park starts. Yes, and then and no, the park starts at 59th. Oh, sorry. 50, 57th, I would turn over again the same kind of scene, past Carnegie Hall, right up uh, Columbus Circle. There was no Trump Tower at that time, and uh, on, on up to about 72nd Street, and it would go out to 50 out to Riverside Drive which is another elite area so for miles after that you'd have all these wonderful luxury apartment buildings and so on and finally around 129th or 30th Street uh, it would go on a long viaduct and then it would do a, a right turn back into the occupied area and there you'd see the tenements and I would wonder why is this I mean what why why this huge disparity and there was nobody else, there was no other, other explanation around. There, there, was nothing, there was nothing there other than Marxism. Uh, and I, I stumbled across, I had not read Marx, but I, 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 I bought a secondhand pair, a set of uh, encyclopedias, small set, for some ridiculously low price. And uh, there, they, I looked up Karl Marx, I'd heard the name, and mm-hmm. the stuff that he said seemed to make sense. And later on, I would get more and more into it. Uh, and uh, uh, the argument was, was that the, the rich had gotten rich by taking from the poor. Right. And well, that, that, was, that was one explanation. But what is interesting, there was no other explanation out there, really. And that's true largely in our, our colleges and universities today. But so, so by the time you went to
0: Harvard undergrad, well, so you drop out at the age of 16, mm-hmm. And
1: you start reading marks in your late teens. I uh, know uh, I start reading marks, yes, 1940, no, no, ni- at age 19. Age 19. And then you were in the Marine Corps for a couple of years. What, what, what was it, two, three years? Uh, two years. It was actually one, one, one year, 11 months, and five days, but who's counting? But who's counting? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so by the time you went to Harvard, you had already become
0: intellectually engaged with Marxism. Yes. And remained, and Harvard didn't talk you out of it, and and the study of economics at Harvard didn't talk you out of it, nor did getting a master's at Columbia, nor did getting a doctorate at Chicago dissuade you from Marxism. Is that, and you studied with Milton Friedman of all people. How could you have sat in Milton Friedman's classroom and remained a Marxist? Some people are just stubborn.
1: <laughs> uh, but uh, what really changed me uh, was not the University of Chicago. Uh, it was my first job, working in a professional capacity for the government. I was a summer intern. This is after Chicago, or no, no. While I was still a graduate student. Got it. Uh, and so during the summer vacation, I, I worked in the U.S. Department of Labor, and I began to realize, from a number of things, that. The government is not simply the personification of the general will like uh, Rousseau or, or others. The government, is an institu- the government institutions have their own institutional uh, interests. Uh, one involved the minimum wage law. I was a big supporter of that. But I also knew that there was an argument that minimum wage law simply priced low-wage workers out of a job. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, uh, my, I, my first assignment was, was a, dealt with minimum wages in Puerto Rico. And as I looked at the numbers, I would see as they would jack up the minimum wage, the number, number of jobs would go down, and so forth. But there were two explanations. One was that of the economists that you priced the people out of a, out of a job, and the other was that there were there were uh, hurricanes that had come through Puerto Rico. You see, during the sugar harvesting, and therefore, and I was studying the sugar industry, and therefore it destroyed a lot of the crop. Therefore, you wouldn't hire as many workers. Now, in Chicago, I had been taught that if there are two different theories, there should be some more, some empirical evidence, in principle, that could distinguish what would happen under one theory from what would happen under the other. Right. And so I wrestled with that for the, most of the summer. And one morning I came in and I said, "I got it. What we need are data on the amount of sugar cane standing in the fields before the hurricane struck." And as I waited for the congratulations, I could see stricken looks around me in the room. Like, this guy has stumbled on something that will ruin us all. (laughs) You know? And they said, well, we, we don't have those data. I said, oh, I'll bet the Department of Agriculture has it. He said, well, well, but we, that doesn't mean we have it. Uh, well, we, you'd have to have a, a request go up the chain of command to the Secretary of Labor. He would then confer with the Secretary of Agriculture. It would come down the chain of command in the Department of Agriculture to whoever has those numbers and so on. I said, good. Well, they say a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, so I will now submit my request to the Secretary of Labor, which I did. And I am still patiently awaiting this <laughs> reply. <laughs> and the institutional fear of the number was what—that it. Would... Uh, oh, the U.S. Department of Labor administers the minimum wage law, I see. and I—and the uh, uh, money and the careers of perhaps a third or some other s- significant percentage of the minimum, of the labor department's resources come from administering the minimum wage law. One of the real farces of all this is that the law itself, Section 4D, I still remember, requires the Labor Department to study the employment effects of minimum wages. And those studies are absolutely a farce. Uh, in fact, some years after I left, I did an article saying why those uh, studies were a farce. And when I came back later on to the labor department to do some research, one of the older librarians who remembered me turned to the younger librarian and she said, "This is the man who wrote that article that has everybody up in arms." <laughs> <laughs> so you became you
0: began to be dissuaded about of Marxism
1: and of government uh, and of government in general because. The, the, the government uh, is not out there at the personification of, of the national interest. Right. They have their own interests. and the Labor Department was clearly an interest in, in keeping the minimum wage because that's, the, that's their jobs and careers right. and power. In your, which brings us, if I may, to one of my favorite books,
0: your 2000 book, this is a beat up old copy, mm-hmm. this book Conflict of Visions, yes. which you published in 2007 and no. you lay out, I'm sorry, 1987. I beg your pardon, 1987.
1: Reprinted
0: in 2007. Uh, Well, beat up as this book is, it turns (laughs) out this is a reprint, sorry. 1987, and you lay out two competing ways of looking at economics and politics, really two competing ways of looking at life that go back at least 200 years. The constrained vision and the unconstrained vision. The constrained vision, I'm quoting from A Conflict of Visions, sees the evils of the world as deriving from the limited and unhappy choices available given the inherent moral and intellectual limitations of human beings, close quote. So the constrained vision understands itself as constrained by the limitations of reality itself.
1: Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. In other words, they cannot proceed as so many do that good things happen automatically but bad things are somebody's fault. Got it got it. And then to continue here the constrained
0: vision again quoting from a conflict of visions for the amelioration, improvement of the human condition the constrained vision relies on certain social processes such as moral traditions, the marketplace or families. Mm. Not government. Mm. So explain that. Why why do we rely why do, why do we re- rely on so, on processes? rather than the will of the people instituting changes to improve our condition?
1: Well, uh, it doesn't ignore government. Uh, uh, Even for the market to work, you have to have a government as Europe discovered when the Roman Empire collapsed and the economies collapsed also. Uh,
0: Families have a lot going on.
1: One of the reasons would be that with the government, you have surrogate decision makers and they cannot possibly know as much as the individuals whose personal decisions have been preempted. I see, I see. All right, which brings us to the unconstrained vision. When, again I'm quoting
0: you, when Rousseau said that man is born free but everywhere in chains, he expressed the essence of the unconstrained vision which the, in which the fundamental problem is not nature or man, but institutions. Yes. Would you explain that
1: one? Well, he has the notion that, uh, again, that that good things happen naturally. Uh, and If they're bad things, it's because uh, institutions, including civilization itself, have have made these bad things happen. And of course, uh, and I think that that's really the uh, the implicit assumption behind a lot of things that are said on the left today. Uh, And why in my most recent book, I go to a lot of trouble to show that uh, in nature, uh, there is nothing resembling equal opportunity. That wherever you look around the country, around the, around the world, uh, you find people who live up in the mountains, poor and backwards, even in the richest countries, uh, n- including the United States. Mm-hmm. I believe the, the poorest country in the United States, the county rather, uh, was in a mountain community, uh, which was almost 100% white.
0: Somewhere and in Appalachia, West Virginia, yes, yeah, Southern yeah, Ohio, or right. Yes, now, mm-hmm.
1: uh, and, and that men in that in that county had a life expectancy ten years less than men in a in a county in, in in Virginia. And the constrained, the unconstrained vision says, "Let's fix
0: that. We surely we can pass a law that would improve that." And the constrained vision says, "Well, now wait a moment. If people who live in isolated pockets in mountains." are poor and backwards all around the world and we see this pattern over and over and over again, maybe there's something very deeply rooted in reality about that that's hard for us to get at, correct? Yes. All right, so in the book A Conflict of Visions, you're very dispassionate and very analytical and you lay out the unconstrained vision and you lay out the constrained vision and you don't really come out Blazing in favor of one or the other.
1: No, it, 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 yeah, the, the, that is not a book meant to, meant to uh, uh, show that one vision is, is, is better than the other. It's, it's there to show you what what they are and what right. you're assuming if you if you go one direction or another. Okay, and it's, it's to encourage people to understand the implicit assumptions behind all this, without which you're, you're just at, 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 at loose ends. All right. So if, if, pondering all this, I, I. Notice something—a
0: a column that you wrote. This is a couple of years ago, in which you rebutted Nicholas Kristoff of the New York Times, and Kristoff had ascribed the gaps between African Americans and whites in America—gaps in wealth, gaps in educational achievement—the usual gaps—to—and mm-hmm. this is a quotation from Kristoff to the lingering effects of slavery. Close quote. Oh yeah. And here's Tom Sowell. Quote: If we wanted to be serious about evidence. (laughs) We might compare where blacks stood 100 years after the end of slavery with where they stood after 30 years of the liberal welfare state. In other words, we could compare hard evidence on the legacy of slavery with hard evidence on the legacy of liberals, close quote. And so there it is. Life is hard. You use the word hard. You you use the word serious. You use evidence. Tom Sowell, is a man of the constrained vision through and through and through, correct?
1: Yes. No, no. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, yes, you know, I, 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 part of a, of a vanishing breed, I might add. So when, so when you were a Marxist, the
0: notion, explain that because the mar, Marxism. Well, but no, no, you see. The, yeah. So that's complicated. I, even when
1: I was a Marxist, I, I had the same intellectual standards. Right. And, and that, that's what eventually led me away from it. Oh, I see. In other words, I did. I hadn't done all the research. I hadn't gone around the world looking, looking for busy. evidence. Yes, yes. Okay. So, and so socialism is a great idea. That does not mean it's a great reality. One of the things that, that, that disturbs me tremendously is about this enthusiasm for Bernie Sanders and socialism at a time when people are literally starving in Venezuela, an oil-rich country. Yeah. You know, and they're, they're you know they're breaking into into grocery stores to try to get food, and they're fleeing to neighboring countries, most of which are not all that prosperous themselves. But but at least you don't starve to death in them, uh, and and none of that makes a bit a bit of difference. Mm-hmm. I don't think most of these people who are out there cheering for Bernie Sanders have given a thought to Venezuela, to the evidence. That's right, to the evidence. Yeah. All right.
0: Which brings us to something that you refer to in a number of columns as the retrogression, the experience of African Americans in this country. Mm. Economic progress, I'm quoting you. Despite the grand myth that black economic progress began or accelerated with the passage of the civil rights laws and the war on poverty programs of the 1960s, the fact is that the poverty rate among blacks fell from 87% in 1940 to 47% in 1960, But over the next 20 years, the poverty rate among blacks fell another 18 percentage points. This was just the continuation of of a previous economic trend, but at a slower rate of progress. It was not some grand deliverance." Close quote. That is so counter to what we are taught in school, what appears on the editorial pages of newspapers, (laughs) <laughs> that I have, I feel as though I want to ask you, you really want to stick with that,
1: that, that assertion. <laughs> oh, I, 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 I have more evidence in, in my most, most recent book, uh, Discrimination and Disparities. Uh, I point out that this really is a pattern not peculiar to blacks or even to the United States, that you can see the same thing in England, you can see it in any number of other countries, that the poor were, were, were much worse off economically, let's say in the first half of the 20th century, and yet, they, in terms of their own behavior, they were they were they had they were far more decent uh, societies, uh, and and afterwards after after this welfare state that's supposed to make them better off and 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 better human beings, that's when the crime rates skyrocketed, on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, the British were, no, were famous for being perhaps the most polite, considerate society uh, in the world prior to that. Uh, after that, you get things like the 2011 riots over there, Went right. London, Manchester, where, they, where they're going through this, they, they, they anticipated Ferguson uh, and uh, and uh, Baltimore by a few years. And the same thing is the, the, the burning down of, of, of buildings, the throwing of gasoline bombs at police, the whole schmear. Uh, and none of those people were descendants of slaves. So, so the poor
0: people were doing, if the, the lesson of the 20th century is something like, poor people, including in this country, African Americans, were improving their lot and leading fundamentally decent lives until the government decided to help them. Yeah, yes. That's a, that's a fair statement. Well, they're, but by they're, the way, they're, they're better
1: off uh, uh, economically because of what's been given. Right. But of course, when you, when you have the crime rate I mean, I, I, got, I got the first inkling of this some years back when I was a, a, at some school in Harlem doing some research. And I looked out the window and I mentioned in passing that when I was a little kid, I used to walk my dog in that park and looks of horror came over the students' faces. Nobody in his right mind would have a child going to that park, walking a dog or not. The principal was warning these students not to cross this park, which is about a block and a half wide, uh, even in groups of six. Uh, And and when I tell them about how in these hot summer nights I would sleep out on the fire escapes in Harlem, they looked at me like I was a man from Mars. People were doing that all over New York. They were doing it in Philadelphia, Washington, wherever I've known people. That was a common thing for Portland. We didn't have the money for air conditioning. Right. You slept out on, on the fire escape or in the parks. Where Walter grew up in a-, in a Walter a, Williams. A, Walter Williams grew up in a uh, a housing project in Philadelphia, he was saying on the hot summer nights, the people would be in this project, have, have little balconies. They'd sleep out on the balconies, and the ones on the first floor who didn't have balconies would sleep out in the yard. And that there were old men who would, you could see sit on a hot summer night sitting outdoors into the wee hours playing cards or, uh, or, or checkers or whatever. It was a different world. Mm. It was and a, a tragic- safe world. And, the, and it was infinitely safer.
0: Now, what about family structure, Tom? Again, I'm quoting you. Most black children were being raised in two-parent families in 1960. 30 years after the liberal welfare state, the great majority of black children were being raised by single parents. Yes. How, what, what, what's the, what, how does that, by the okay. way, we should, we should note that Pat Moynihan, Patrick Moynihan publishes the Moynihan Report in 1965, yes. and he's alarmed because the uh, illegitimacy rate among black families is 25% then. Now, among whites it's over a third, yes. Hispanics it's over half, and among African Americans it's over 70%. What's going on there?
1: Well this is, how, again, this too, you find the same thing in Britain, you find it in uh, France, in Norway, you find it in the Western world. Uh, in, in fact, uh, there The dissolution are any, of the family structure. Oh yeah, there are any number of, of uh, Western nations where 40 percent of the children are, uh, are raised with, with only one parent, right? Uh, at the extremes, uh, ice, uh, compared to uh, Asian countries, uh, at the extremes, uh, Iceland, it's uh, two out of three uh, children born are raised in single-parent home. Uh, in South Korea, it's one out of 66.: Wow. Wow. And so wh- wh- that's the welfare state?: what Yes, it is. Oh, you're you're paying. You you you're creating a situation where, if the if the uh, first of all the, the, you, well, you're cre- you're creating a situation where if the man stays there, the the government will not give them give the woman welfare, uh, and if he leaves, he, he uh, it will. And so they're, pay- they're paying. They're paying. When you pay people not to get married, more people don't get married. Right. Right. Okay. So so what would have happened?
0: If Lyndon Johnson, instead of becoming a liberal, had remained a crusty, tough, skeptical <laughs> Texas, t- Texas conservative, yes. which is certainly the way he started his career, mm. if, he, if Lyndon Johnson had embraced the constrained vision, instead of instituting the war on poverty and the great society and so
1: forth, what would the country look like today? A lot better. You would not have the same rates of crime and so on. Because, you see, you can't have a welfare state in a democratic country unless you first have a welfare state vision. And when you buy all the assumptions of that vision, then you're buying a lot of trouble. One of the, one of the episodes I think epitomized, it, it was in France in this case, uh, that there were attacks, knife attacks, by various people from North Africa against Chinese people in, uh, in some suburb of Paris. And one of the, 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 the things that uh, the attackers said, you know, that uh, why, why are you attacking the Chinese? And it wasn't because of anything the Chinese had done to them. So they have nice clothes and big cars. That's not fair. Hmm. I mean, that's, you know, uh, egalitarianism as a philosophy is one thing, but the actual consequences of it uh, uh, mean things like uh, resenting other people's good fortune, right? All right. So, one
0: response to the gap again, I return to this gap between African Americans and other Americans affirmative action. Yes. Which brings us back to your alma mater, Harvard. According to. I never, I'll never live it down. You'll never live it down, yes. You once told me that the principal benefit of a Harvard degree was never again having to be impressed by anybody who had a Harvard degree. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So these are figures that were published in the Harvard Crimson, the student yes. newspaper. In the Harvard class of 2019, these are the kids who will be graduating next June, the average SAT score for black students was 2149. By the way, these are all good scores, but for black students, 2149, white students, 2218, Asian students, 2300. Hmm. Well, now that must be reasonable because it's taking place at Harvard, the seat
1: of reason. Well, I, well that, that wasn't quite how I described it when I was there. <laughs> Affirmative action. Is that is that, we ought not to be doing this? You know, there, there are various uh, laws and policies that benefit one group at the expense of another. But I think affirmative action has the distinction of being one that it harms everybody, though in different ways. And so you, you, there, there's a lot of evidence that there are black kids who have all the qualifications to be successes in college, who nevertheless are failures because they are systematically mismatched with institutions whose standards they don't meet even though they may meet the standards of 80 or 90 percent of the colleges in America. I remember first aware of this when I was teaching at Cornell, and I found that half the black students at Cornell were on some kind of academic probation. And so I went over to the administration building and looked up the SATs of these students. The average black student at Cornell at that time scored at the 75th percentile. Which is pretty darn good. Yes. And so that means that, in, that at most colleges in this country, they would have no trouble and many of them would be on the dean's list. But at Cornell, the average uh, liberal arts student at that time was in the 99th percentile. And, and, when, you, when, you, and when you're teaching the stu- students like that, uh, you teach at a pace that most people of any race cannot keep up with. And I, I was, it was always complained that I was assigning all kinds of uh, reading but heck, I'm teaching kids who are in the top 1%. They can, they, they can keep up with the, with the reading that I'm right. assigning. Uh, so Cornell was taking very talented black
0: kids and spending four years teaching them to feel inadequate. Yes, and succeeding at that. Hmm. Um, a couple of quotations. This is, these are both from the last affirmative action case to reach the Supreme Court, last big affirmative action case to reach the Supreme Court, 2003, uh, Grutter versus Bollinger. Here's the majority opinion, which was written by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Quote, the court expects that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer (laughs) be necessary. This upholding the use of, in a decision, 5-4 decision upholding the use of racial preferences. Now, that's quotation one. Here's quotation two, Justice Thomas, Justice Clarence Thomas, in a dissent. Quote, I believe that blacks can achieve in every avenue of American life Without the meddling of university administrators. The court holds that racial discrimination and admissions should be given another 25 years. While I agree that in 25 years these practices will be illegal, they are illegal now. <laughs> Close quote. So, here's what do you do with the argument that Justice O'Connor, writing that majority opinion, there's something of the constrained vision there. Look, we have these, all universities across the country are using these racial preferences to, as the basis of admission. The best we can hope to do is tell them they ought not to be doing it, that they should be developing other standards and give them a, give them a clock.
1: Is that, <laughs> that's a, is that a reasonable thing to do? No, but it's a universal thing to do. Uh, I wrote a book uh, about affirmative action, it was called Affirmative Action Around the World. And I made a couple of uh, international trips at the expense of the Hoover Institution uh, around the world to check on affirmative action. This is one of the the most common arguments, and it's absolutely fallacious time and time again. The argument that, that, like so much in the unconstrained vision, it assumes that we have a power that we do not have, cannot have, and never have had. Uh, in, in England, there was a man named Scarman who was saying, "For the, now, we must do this in order to." Uh, order. And in many countries, these pre, these programs were set up with an actual cutoff date. So it was set up in in, in Malaysia with a cutoff date, I think, of around it, it set, well, 1990. And in Pakistan, I it was like it was supposed to go for 10 years. Mm-hmm. None of those th- cutoff dates has met. a a thing. These programs not only continue, they increase, they spread. So the idea that you can control the the future uh, because of these wonderful sounding words, I can't think of a country in the world where where, where that's ever happened. Uh, In the case of Pakistan, they did have an actual, actual cutoff date uh, and because the people in East Pakistan were, for whatever historical reason, way behind the people in West Pakistan. And so there's these preferences for the East Pakistanis. Now, before time for this thing to expire, the East Pakistanis uh CC'd from Pakistan and formed a new nation of Bangladesh. Bangladesh, right. And the preferences continued right on because there were other groups that had been added to it. And so once you get the constituency, you can't say no to them. I see. It, 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 is, it is an argument that, that, that has never worked out anywhere that I've been able to, to, to check.
0: All right, so Tom Sowell says no to the welfare state, no to affirmative action, what is to be done? And now you were kind enough to share with me uh, uh, the galleys of your forthcoming edition of Discrimination and Disparities. Let me give you a few quotations from some of the new, the new chapter in yeah. that book, quote, the poverty rate among black married couples has been less than 10% every year since 1994. As far back as 1969, young black males whose homes included newspapers, magazines and library cards had similar incomes to those of their white counterparts. Academic outcomes show a pattern of disparities similar to the pattern of disparities in the amount of time devoted to schoolwork. Apparently. Lifestyle choices have consequences, Yes. close quote. So this is the constrained vision once again. Welfare state, that's government, we don't rely on that. Affirmative action, government, we don't rely on that. We rely on hard work. We rely on the institution of marriage. That's correct?
1: Yes, in other words, these these things, I don't think it's it's the marriage as such or the library cards as such it's that there are lifestyle choices that have been made. And the, and the comparison I made was between, if you look at the poverty rate among blacks, uh, uh, it was a 22%, and among whites, it was 11%. But among black married couples, it was 7.5%. Right. So, it's not, so they not only do better than blacks as a whole, they do better than whites as a whole. And so it's, 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 so, so it's lifestyle choices. Similarly with, with the results, and some of these uh, more successful charter schools, that uh, you have these kids not only uh, meeting but exceeding the national standards in places like ha- Harlem and bed Divers in the South Bronx. And these are not kids who are cr- skimming the crown cream. They're kids chosen by lottery. They don't even test them for ability. They don't even look at their academic records. They take them into the schools and, and, they, and they have hard work and they, they make it clear at the outset and they don't tolerate a lot of nonsensical behavior. Uh, and, and, and these kids are doing incredibly. So, Tom, here, again, I think back
0: to the Moynihan, well, no, I think, so the Moynihan report in 65, and he was very alarmed mm-hmm. by uh, the illegitimacy rate of 25% among African Americans. By the way, in fairness to the late Moynihan, we should point out one reason he was alarmed by this was his own, his own father had walked out on the family That's when he right. was 10 years old. He experienced what it meant yes. to be to kids to have one parent. Okay. And now it's all gotten dramatically worse for whites and Hispanics and mm. black, for everybody. Mm. And then I think back beyond that to your experience of Harlem, you drop out of high school and do what? Go on welfare? Start cashing? F- no, you went to work and you spent some of that money to buy some inexpensive encyclopedias. Yeah. And the, t- the Harlem was sick. So, but I feel this uh, council—it's—it's it's almost a council of despair, in that that world just seems so utterly vanished. No, no question. You, but do, so your argument is, if we, if we can stand up to the welfare state, we can somehow get back to that world. The family family
1: structure will reassert itself. Oh, that, that's going to—that's that, going to be reconquering the same ground, which is very really tough to do, but it can—it can be done. I was, I was so lucky, I, I, at the time I had no, no clue about all this. I left home in uh, at, at at 1948. Uh, many decades later I learned that the uh, uh, unemployment rate among black teenagers in 1948, 16, 17 year olds, was uh, 9.4%. Among whites of the same age it was 10.2%. So both blacks and white teenagers had only a fraction of the unemployment that they have today. Uh, and you were, were expected to work, you were expected to be able to get a job. And more, more importantly, the jobs were there for you. Uh, and so, and, when, when, and this is because of a fluke, really. The, 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 the minimum wage law in the United States, Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, uh, was passed with specified rates of pay that you're supposed to get. Uh, almost immediately, Uh, inflation took off during the 1940s. So by 1948, those numbers that were in the law were meaningless. Oh, I see. In other words, when I started out as a Western Union messenger, the minimum wage was 40 cents an hour. I started out at the bottom at 65 cents an hour. So it was the same as if there was no minimum wage. And Uh, this is what happened. You had this, and I was so lucky. I knew, of course, had no clue about any of this. Now, now a, a black kid 20 years later comes in there. Uh, they've now, they, 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 People have become compassionate. They've raised the minimum wage. So he can't get a job. Got it. And I don't think it does any, any community any good to have a whole lot of t- teenage uh, males hanging around on the streets with no job and nothing to do. Right. Tom, so,
0: but, but, another thought here. You're describing a world Harlem, the urban world, gone. Yes. You, but you made visits when you were young. You knew the South as well, didn't you? Did you, you? You went back to the South when you were young from time to time? I say uh, back to the South because uh, as I recall, you were born in the South. Uh, yeah.
1: Like, yeah, I went, went to New York. Went to New York. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think this was courtesy of the Marine Corps, uh, which happened to locate the, but, the boot camp in South Carolina but what I'm, and Camp
0: Lejeune in North Carolina. Okay. So what I'm getting at is, You were of the generation that saw Jim Crow with your own eyes. Oh, no question.
1: No question. Okay.
0: So, well, here's, let me read you a quotation. This is from an article that got a lot of attention in The Atlantic a couple of years ago called The Case for Reparations by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Quote, white supremacy is a force so fundamental to America that it is difficult to imagine the country without it. Reparations is the price we must pay to see ourselves squarely." Close quote. And Tom Sowell, who actually saw Jim Crow with his own eyes and experienced it, responds, "How?":
1: It would be nice to know his uh, evidence for what he said, just to be old-fashioned about it. Uh, no, it, 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 it was a rotten system, but I don't know how how, how we get from that to reparations. I mean. What we see in the United States in terms of the bad things, you see all around the world. If you were to give reparations to everyone whose ancestors had been slaves, I suspect that you would have to give reparations to more than half the entire population of the globe. Slavery was not confined to one set of races. I suspect that most of the people who were either slaves or slave owners around the world were neither white nor black. I mean, this was this was a universal curse of the human species.
0: Africa, the Middle East, Asia,
1: oh, slavery took and, place and, everywhere, and, and and it continued elsewhere long after uh, it, it was abolished in the Western countries. All
0: right. let me try. his, uh, t- sticking with ta coats. It's Shelby talks. Shelby Steele talks about white guilt, mm. and in Ta-Nehisi coats, you get almost the counterpart of that, uh, a kind of. African American claim against the White Guild. And this seems it beginning with the abolitionists, even beginning before the Civil War, Mm. you seem almost every generation there's some expression that racism and slavery, as Shelby calls it, correctly, of course, the sin of slavery is so deeply, and it's something we still live with. How do we expiate it? How do we get past it? Is there something we can do to relieve ourselves of this legacy?
1: Oh, I think you should repeat it. Uh, If you were a slave owner, I I don't see any reason why you should feel differently. On the other hand, I I can't get over the idea of A, apologizing for what B, did. Okay. Uh, Even when they're contemporaries, much less when, 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 when one is dead and the other is alive. All right. I mean, I, I, Scalia, I remember, was saying you know, that uh, I, 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 I owe no man anything uh, because uh, p- people who look like me call, did something that people who look like him. Okay. So just get past it. Get yeah. to work. Yeah. All right. Tom Sowell's
0: view is get an education, stay married, and do your job, roughly. Yeah. All right. Charles Murray, I'm taking, you used to write a column every so often called Random Thoughts on the Passing oh, yes, Scene. Yes. And so I'm giving you a little, little snippets here of the passing scene as our, in our final questions. Charles Murray in his 1984 book, Losing Ground, and Charles Murray writes about discussions in academia and government about the effort to close the gap again between African Americans and whites. Quote, 1984, quote, whites had created the problem. It was up to whites to fix it and there was very little in the dialogue that treated blacks as responsible actors, close yeah. quote. Mm-hmm. Has that changed? No, it has not. All right. On, on we go <laughs> to the passing <laughs> scene. Your friend, your longtime friend Walter Williams. Now we come to current politics. The bottom line is that President Donald Trump does not have the personal character that we would want our children to imitate, <laughs> but save his misguided international trade policies has turned out to be a good president. Tom?
1: I think his policies have been, by and large, have been uh, policies that were far better than that of previous Democratic or Republican administrations. So the-, te- the, the I go by the consequences. Okay. I mean, he, he, he hasn't produced the right rhetoric, but the fact is that uh, uh, unemployment among low-income people, black, Hispanic included, uh, I, I, uh, is, a, is at a level that is far lower than it's been in uh, decades. Uh, yeah, the, 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 uh, the economy is booming in a way that uh, no one had predicted. I, uh, people like uh, Paul Krugman was saying that when uh, Trump gets in, the economy is going to tank. No, uh, the economy t- hit new highs. All right. But but there but, but but there there are so many people among the intelli- intelligentsia especially who are absolutely immune to facts. It's as, as if they it's as if they took their uh, anti-fact shots uh, every 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 year, and uh, the facts will just not affect them. So this brings us
0: back. I can understand. I mean, I really can't, my understanding is limited, which is why I'm going to put this in the form of a question. I can understand the never Trumpers mm-hmm. who don't don't bother me with economic boom because mm. this man is on my television screen every single night and I can't stand him. I can understand, I can see that impulse. I can, I can f- understand what This is feel. the
1: second consecutive president of the United States that I automatically turn off when I'm watching to- on television. <laughs> All right.
0: Keep the remote right next to right oh, yes. your hand.
1: Okay. Who was the first? Obama. Got it.
0: Uh, you're totally bipartisan in that regard. Oh, huh? Always. <laughs> no other but, way. But the great society, the larger point that you've been making here the great society, the war on poverty, this is now six decades of experience. Yes. And we have, as you have said, the gap hasn't closed, we've got uh, dissolution of the family structure, rising crime rates, mm-hmm. that I don't understand. How can it be that the people, I, now I don't know how to remain bipartisan, but Democrats, liberals, the progressives just are not, th- th- The evidence is in, this has not worked. Why, after half, more than half a century, there's still a refusal to look at
1: the evidence. Yes, and and, then there's even a tendency to falsify the evidence.
0: And how come?
1: I think people become uh, attached to a vision and uh, that really warps the way they see the, uh, human beings have an enormous capacity to rationalize. Yeah, all right.
0: Again, notes on the passing scene an article from the New York Times just a couple of days ago, quote, now this is a longish quotation, but it's important to lay out the facts here. Over the last decade, the charter school movement gained significant foothold in New York. The movement hoped to set a national example If charter schools could make it in a deep blue state like New York, they could make it anywhere. Over 100,000 students in the the city's charter schools are doing well on state tests and tens of thousands are on waiting lists. But the election, the election of, of this November, suggested that the golden era of charter schools is over. The insurgent Democrats, Democrats did well across New York, but especially in the state Senate, have repeatedly expressed hostility to the movement." Close quote. And Tom Sowell responds to that set of facts how?
1: Oh, that that really is one of the moral outrages, that for many kids who come from a very poor background and whose parents may not have had much education, a decent education is the one thing they have to have to, to have a better life. And these schools have been absolutely uh, spectacular. Uh, the charter schools. The charter schools. The, the successful ones. Now, there are a few that, that weren't. But, uh, uh, f- for example, uh, a few years ago, uh, on, the, on the statewide, New York statewide math tests, there was an elementary school, grade uh, four, I believe, in Harlem, which, whose students pass those tests at a higher rate than any fourth grade kids anywhere in the state of New York. I mean, we're talking Scarsdale, Cliff, places like that. Uh, the Success Academy schools as a whole, uh, their students pass the, both the math and the English statewide tests at a higher rate than any school system, school district, in the entire state of New York uh, the vast majority of the kids in the Success Academy schools are either black or Hispanic. Uh, if, you, if you look at the five uh, highest scoring uh, districts, school districts in the state in terms of the percentage of the students who pass the math or the English tests, uh, their average family income ranges from Four four times that of the kids in the Success Academy schools to more than nine times the family income of the kids in the Success Academy schools. And yet, the mayor of New York is doing his darndest to to, to put a stop to the expansion of, uh, of schools in general, but his special ire is aimed at the Success Academy schools. And this is happening all over the country. Because they make the, un- the teachers' unions look bad that run the public schools?
0: What, what, what's the political motivation? Why would Mayor so, de Blasio have an out for the charter schools, such as success academy?
1: Well, the teachers' unions are, are the major reason. Uh, and the, We're talking about the, the money they contribute, the number of votes they contribute, uh, and the, the schools, and, what, and what's happening, again, not just in New York, but in other parts of the country, including California, is that they they they, they have all, there's all kind of chicanery uh, to prevent the charter schools from expanding. That's why you have tens of thousands on the waiting list. It's not that the charter schools aren't willing to expand, but every conceivable obstacle is put in their way, because one, if you let that go at a natural pace, it would be very hard for the public schools to compete. And one of the things they're doing is imposing the same kinds of restrictions on the on on the charter schools. That, that made this public school so bad. For example, restrictions on being able to get rid of kids who are, who are, who are running amok and, it's, and, and ruining the education of everybody else. And the charter schools don't tolerate that. Uh, the, the things that are tolerated in the public schools are unbelievable. Uh, so when I asked you a moment ago, how do we bring back the, the
0: standards of the Harlem in which you grew up, the well, answer is that's a hard thing to do, but we do know how to do one thing. We do know how to establish schools where the kids in present-day Harlem have a shot. They have a chance of getting a good education. Yeah, you don't have to
1: bring back the past, uh, even if you could, uh, uh, because we have it in the present. We have have this happening. And so we know how to do that,
0: and the Democratic establishment in New York wants to shut it down.
1: Yes, and the Republican establishment stands mute. Stands mute. At Evernorth Health Services,
0: You know, I love talking to you, but I really don't know why. It's all—it's <laughs> all discouraging. Tom, you mentioned a moment ago the um, the way young Americans uh, flocked to Bernie Sanders. Gallup poll this summer: the proportion of Americans age eighteen to twenty-nine that holds a favorable view of capitalism, forty-five percent. The proportion that holds a favorable view of socialism, fifty-one percent. Now. I would like you to take a look at a brief video of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who at the age of 29, calling herself a democratic socialist, has just been elected to the House of Representatives from New York. And although she's not seated yet in the new Congress, she went to Washington and one of her first acts was to participate in a sit-in in the offices of House Majority Leader Nancy Pelosi. That is to say, the leader of her own party. So here's a brief video. I just want to let you all know how proud I am of each and every single one of you for putting yourselves and your body and and everything on the line to make sure that we save our planet, our generation, and our future. It's so incredibly important. We have to get to 100% renewable energy in 10 years. There is no other option. Tom, <laughs> to her supporters, to the supporters of Bernie Sanders, to young Americans, what would you say?
1: I would say get, get get some facts first. Know what you're talking about before you start spouting out this kind of stuff. Ask the one of the things I do in a new new book is I suggest that, uh, uh, that there's, there's a certain uh, opinion about what happened in the 1920s where the taxes were cut from the highest tax rate was cut down from 73% to 24%. And the argument was, oh, this is tax cuts for the rich. And I have suggested that the students and and that uh, the Secretary of the Treasury did this in in support of a trickle-down theory and so forth. And I suggested that the students would be a wonderful project to go read what the Secretary of the Treasury actually said. Andrew Mellon in the 1920s, these tax cuts. And then uh, go go on the Internet and get the... uh, uh, Internal Revenue Official uh, Data on Who Paid How Much Taxes in the 1920s. And it turns out if you do that, you find that Andrew Mellon said that the exact opposite of what he is attributed it is attributed to him in textbooks that have been uh, sold widely for decades on end through successive editions. Uh, 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 and what you'll find is that in, uh, when the tax rate was at 73 percent, Uh, The the people who are making over uh, $100,000 a year, and that's maybe a couple of million in in today's money, uh, paid 30% of the taxes. And after the so-called tax cuts for the rich, they paid 65% of all the taxes. (laughs) And the people with incomes under $5,000, which also was a nice income in those days, Mm -hmm. uh, were paying uh, 15% when the tax rate was was, uh, cut. But before the tax tape was cut, and after it was cut, they paid uh just under a quarter of one percent of all the taxes and so we hear how and so there's all kinds of indignation in these scholarly books we're not talking about just political propaganda uh how this this was a bonanza for the rich and so on and uh, people with ordinary incomes paid practically nothing in income tax after the tax cuts and though and millionaires uh the share of millionaires was uh I think 4% before that, and, and, and it was 19% afterwards. Uh, and, but, the, but the facts simply do not matter. Mm-hmm. They, they say these words, they say trickle down, and it's like saying abracadabra, and, and all the miraculous things follow from that.
0: Tom Sowell, author of a forthcoming edition of Discrimination and Disparities. Would you close by reading a brief quotation from your 1987 book, one of my
1: favorites, A Conflict of Visions? Logic, of course, is not the only test of a theory. Empirical evidence is crucial. And yet social visions have shown a remarkable ability to evade, suppress, or explain away discordant evidence. Historic evasions of evidence are a warning, not a model. Dedication to a cause may legitimately entail sacrifices of personal interests, but not sacrifices of mind or conscience.
0: Dr. Thomas Sowell, thank you. Thank you. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.